0: Hello everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host Claire Watkins. This week we're going to keep it loose again. You know, I think there's some stuff happening this coming week. We're we're scheduling we're recording this, sorry, on Sunday evening. We'll see kind of what the upcoming week brings, but we're just going to, I think, do a mailbag this week. I didn't have anything definitive really to talk about that we haven't sort of retreaded before. So I think we're just going to answer some questions. And this week I am joined by Equalizer contributor, John Halloran. How's it going, John?
1: Good. Kind of ready to kick back into gear after taking a few weeks of Serious downshifting.
0: Yeah, I think everyone took a little bit of a break, which I think is good. It's healthy. You know, the league too, which is why we don't necessarily have a ton, ton to talk about. Um, we've also seen just a number of of disruptions due to this next wave of the COVID-19 pandemic as well. And so that's affected playing over in, in England. The the WSL had to postpone a couple of games this weekend. Um, some intriguing scores over there, but they're sort of in this minor disarray as well. Um. Before we jump in, though, maybe, John, just because we haven't had you on the podcast in a little bit, maybe give us sort of an update on your impressions of the month of December in the league. You know, there was a lot of player movement. There were two drafts, obviously. I mean, we were chatting a little bit before we started even just, you know, online. And you said, and I think you're right, that at, at this point it's still a little bit too soon, I think, to do anything yeah. definitive with this just because the picture is still so unclear, but maybe that's worth talking about for a second because you've been covering this sport in this country for a while. What did you make of of December in, in NWSL?
1: I think that's a really good question. I think that, yeah, as we were talking about before we got going today, I just kept feeling every time there was a piece of news with the expansion draft, that it was impossible to judge it or rate it or analyze it in the same way that we would have in the past because allocation money played a much larger factor than we're used to seeing we we didn't just see a normal expansion draft where a group of players was picked one at a time we saw this take place over weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to it and a lot of times what was being traded wasn't tangible in the sense that it wasn't a player for a player. Um, Now that makes sense because it's an expansion draft and obviously the expansion teams don't have a lot of assets to trade. So they were trading money and, and picks and stuff like that. So it just makes it really hard to judge. I think like last year when racing did their expansion draft, it was very easy to look at the players that they picked and say, Hey, did they pick the right players or did they not? Or where did they misstep? Where did they get it? Right. And this year it just didn't feel that way. Um, But I will say that I think LA put together a really impressive roster at this point. And one of the things that I like so much about looking what they've put together so far is that if you go through every line on the field, they have like a couple of legit NWSL players. And so, they're not necessarily only building one area of the field or they didn't bring in three superstars surrounded by a bunch of role players on every line. They have at least two legitimate NWSL proven veteran players. And I think that's just such an amazing core for that club to build out of. Um, the other thing, and you alluded to this a lot through the month of December, it really felt like, the teams, whether that was out of guilt or the CBA, that they were respecting players' wishes to an extent that we have never seen in, in the history of this league. And to, to one extent, I absolutely respect that. You want to make sure that players are, are in places that they want to be and that they're happy and that they're going to perform. And especially for players who aren't on a contract, that's even really paying them a livable wage at this point. You want to make sure that that you respect that. I do feel like a few teams though didn't even try to get anything in return, right? And that was odd because I have no problem respecting a player's wishes, but you do want to get some sort of asset in return. You for... want to
0: you want to establish that player's value, right? In, right. In the market. It's actually yeah. good for the player as well to have or other players to have an established value for player movement, right? you want to establish market value for players because that's good. It's good to have precedence because these players do have value. And so in a weird way, you need these to be reasonable moves. Otherwise it throws everything into question. And that's not really good either. Um, And also a good example of, and we talk about this a million times, but a good reason to get a CBA done, right? Because you don't want, when we talk about, we've talked about this so much about how, player movement player value player experience it relies on the benevolence of the ownership that is kind of what's happening here too and it makes things weird it's like a sw- a pendulum swing in the other direction mm-hmm, and so when sure. you have things in writing you can just be normal and i think that that's what we're ultimately hoping for um yeah no that all makes sense i think you're right i mean we, we'll talk more about la i think once we get a clearer picture of everything We need to get through the month of January and get some preseason rosters, I think, before we can really dig into anything, which is why I asked you guys on Twitter today for questions. And y'all really came through some very, very good questions in here. Um, Ones that like we could probably take one of these and and run with them. So we're going to pick pick a couple. Um, So let's start. Here's a good one, actually. I really like this one. So this is from this is from Theo Lloyd-Hughes, who does fabulous work down in Houston for the Striker Texas. Um, if you are a Houston Dash fan, please go check his work out. No one is really doing regional work quite like him down there. Theo asked, Are any teams primed to take the Challenge Cup quote-unquote more seriously, or does the competition have the same purpose for all teams? Um, I'll start with that. I think... No, I don't think the competition has the same purpose for all teams. I think that there are a number of teams who are going to want to make a splash early. I think, um, whether it's for ticket sales reasons or proof in the project reasons, um, I'll say this. I think the two teams actually that might be trying to do the most with the challenge cup are Washington, obviously, because I think they have a lot of people coming back, keep that momentum going. Um, Gotham. I think Gotham might really be trying to make a run at the challenge cup as well. Cause I think that they are a team that is known, but also a little bit new. And I think that they are trying to become a more forceful presence in sort of the national conversation of the league on the field. So I think Gotham is another one who might see a lot of value in trying to win the challenge cup. I don't know, John, what do you think? Are there any other players that you think might be trying to really go for it?
1: I don't even know necessarily about go for it, but I think that you're going to see teams like LA and San Diego and probably Kansas city and racing, I suppose take it a little more seriously because they have to kind of figure out what they're trying to do this year. I guess even more than that, Orlando because of how much just for evaluation you think with. Yeah. I mean, you just have one of the things that when we were talking about in that first segment about the the players moving and the expansion drafts and whatnot. I don't feel like we have had a player dispersal player movement like this since the initial year of the league, when they had that initial draft and when they were bringing, you know, the allocated players and, and splitting them up between the teams, because there were so many players that moved this off season. And we're not talking about role players. We're talking about, massive stars, moving teams. And there was just such a fundamental power shift. Although I'm not sure we know exactly what's going to happen as a result of that, which should make 2022 so fun. And what really should make the challenge cup, I think more fun than in a quote unquote normal year, because we don't really know what a lot of these teams are going to do. I think what you're saying with Washington, um, you know, and having as much coming back, I think they could definitely, Make a run. Portland's the other one that I right. think they just have so much power um, that they're they're a competitor. In any anything that they're any tournament that they're in.
0: Yeah, I think with Portland, their journey. I mean, again, it's a little bit early, but cons- you know, with the assumption that things will stay maybe no big splashy signing for Portland, but maybe they'll get one, is that they're going to be working some younger players into maybe like a Crystal Dunn role. They might be looking at someone like Sam Coffey or Yasmin Ryan got got time in that role at the end of the season. So I wonder if, if for them it's tinkering, it's not sort of a full revamp. And then for the teams that are going to be relying on draft picks quite a bit, you talk about Louisville, getting Jalen Howell involved right away. Um, North Carolina, I think, is another sleeper that's really going to have to figure out a system with a very, very different roster. Um, So, more seriously, I think maybe going from that, like we had in past years, we had like the Red Stars say, we're not trying at all. Or we had some certain teams being like, this is not something that we're going to try to go win. Um, But maybe the point is that even for the teams that might not be winning the challenge cup and the challenge cup is slightly expanded. That's part of it as well. They're going to be playing, I think one more group stage game or something like that. It's a little bit longer because the regular season is a little bit shorter. Um, It's going to be very important for, for these teams to figure out exactly who they are. And you're right. Like it's going to be a little bit, the challenge cup is going to have some, um, some notable games just because you're going to like, see Alex Morgan play for San Diego for the first time. And you're going to see Christy Mewis maybe play for Gotham for the first time. And, and all of these different, I mean, Kristen press at angel city, Mm -hmm. that's going to be a massive, massive thing. So um, I, I think that you're right that it's the challenge cup this year might feel a little bit different than last year in a positive way, just because of the shakeup within the league. And to be honest, I'm not sure who wins. I don't know who goes for the cup and who is successful. It might be a brand new squad. I mean, we saw kind of the new ish Gotham go all the way to the final last time. So I think that that's maybe a good precedent to set. Um, so let's talk a little bit. Okay. Let's actually do this. Cause I, we got a couple questions and this ties into challenge cup ties into regular season. And it's not something that we've talked about on, on the show for a while is we had a couple people ask a very basic question. And I think that, maybe this opens up a larger discussion because it's not one of the things we talked about last week. I don't think there were a couple people that asked sort of a, a general question of why is TV production for the league? So thin we've had some people ask, like, why aren't we getting more pregame? Why aren't we mm-hmm. getting more post game? Um, why is there no highlighter analysis show? Why even we're not even getting that, you know, we're not even seeing that on Twitch, which is a, a partner of the league. Um, and I, I think it's a good question, and I like it I like it in its simplicity because I like that the question is, here's a very basic thing that other people are doing for different leagues. Why are we not seeing it for NWSL? Um, and so maybe this opens up a larger question of, and I'll kick this over to you, John. We know some of the limitations of what we saw with NWSL broadcasting coverage last year. Maybe my first question is this. <laughs> With what you've seen from this partnership with Viacom, CBS, plus sort of that sort of relegating to Vista, something like a highlights show, you know, like a half hour highlights show or something like that. Do you think that comes from CBS first or do you think a different media property decides that they want to do that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because just as you were talking about that, it made me think that somebody could definitely jump in and do a, a show which kind of broke down, did some analysis. Yeah. But uh, the second that becomes popular, the league's going to go, oh, we should do that.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> and they're right. just going to come in and take over that market share. Um, I think the bottom line, as we've known forever on just about every issue, is that there's an investment piece to it. And they've got to be willing to put the money into that. In 2020, when more or less sports had died for a brief moment, there was a really nice pregame show. During the challenge cup uh that we saw from CBS. So, you know, our, our friend Sandra was obviously a big part of those pregames. Yeah,
0: she did a lot of those broadcasts, um, right? Yeah. And
1: you know, they had some hiccups early in that process when they had one particular analyst on who clearly knew nothing about women's soccer. But I think what we saw over the course of a few weeks was that show got pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And, sure. you know, with with Sandra and I know Allie Wagner was in on a few of those. And yep. Um, they developed a pretty nice pregame show, one that I actually would watch, and you know that says something. Just because I think most of us would agree that the overall announcing of the league has maybe not been up to where we would hope it would be. Um, but that pregame show was good, so I know that they can do it. It's just a matter if they want to dedicate the time and the resources and pay people to run the production and pay people to. Right. To do that pregame show.
0: Yeah. It's not so much that there aren't people who can do it. Right. I think it is, like you said, just production resources um, and and just sort of tapping into talent that's already there because, I mean, we, <laughs> I'm not even talking about us, but I mean, there are a number of good podcasts about about NWSL. There are people who are high level watchers who, even if they're just on social media, who are who are commentating kind of in their own way. And it's more just sort of tapping into the conversations that are already happening, I think, Um And then, so, all right, here's the next question. And here's one that I, you know, it doesn't really have an answer. It's kind of an open one. So we know that NWSL broadcasts are run by, by Vista, right? And those are even the broadcasts that during the, during the regular season were shown on CBS on the, on the odd chance that there were the CBS games. Those are Vista productions, um, which are covered by the league. The league pays for those. Um, and there was some question during Lisa Baird's tenure of like, why is that the case? Who wanted it like that? Was that what the league wanted? Was that what CBS wanted? Um, so here's, here's my question for you, John, looking into 2022, are you full? Like we need to get this production under the CBS Viacom house, or are you thinking like, well, what if we just invested a little bit more in what the league's already doing?
1: Oh, I think that's the problem, though, is that for for years, the league has essentially given the product away just to get it on TV. And they're not being paid rights fees in the traditional ways, at least in the past. Right, And that's where you get stuck because this was, it, you, you know, a lot of people will remember that there was that in-between moment of the A&E deal as well, where that was supposed to help, I think, fix some of these problems where they kind of took over and and ran that portion of it. Um, it, It's the same with a lot of these deals that we see with local broadcasters, you know, they're giving the rights away. They're just trying to get the product on TV. They're still in that phase of trying to increase awareness of the league to people who aren't even aware that the women's league exists here in the United States. But it, it, it doesn't really matter. I don't think whether it's CBS or, or, you know, done, by the league, it's a matter of is money going to be invested?
0: Right. I think, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, all right, let's pivot into into the ne- I mean, yeah, I mean, my thought on it is I think you start with giving the broadcast more money because I know that they've been working with a pretty limited budget over the last couple of years. But I do also just think that it has to be a more collaborative cross network um, endeavor. I think that when you talk about Games being on Paramount Plus, I think the Paramount Plus deal is great. Um, I would love for them to give NWSL the same treatment they give Serie A and the same treatment they give the Men's Champions League. Um, I think that, or at the very least, if they can't do that, when you are putting money into the production of of those broadcasts, have them talk about NWSL. There just Mm -hmm. needs to be more cross-network synergy here, especially when it's all under the same streaming platform, I think is where I'm at.
1: Can I add two things to that? Um, One, because look, we've talked about this in private and I've said it more times than I probably should have on Twitter. We've had criticisms of the broadcast teams. One thing we should acknowledge is that those broadcasters are seeing the exact same feed we are. They're seeing the game on a TV screen. They are not on location. Sometimes
0: they're sharing a monitor.
1: Right. So as much as sometimes I get frustrated, I do probably give them... A larger pass, knowing that they're seeing what we're seeing, and they—you're right. limited. You're limited by what you see on a television screen and a television broadcast versus what you see when you're sitting in the stadium. Um, and I just think that that makes their job so much tougher. Especially, you know, some of these some of these teams are doing multiple games a weekend as well. Yeah, and to prep for those and do a good job, it's it's really really difficult. And I also think the other thing I wanted to say was that the stadium setups in a couple of NWSL locations make it really tough to put together the video broadcast portion.
0: And this is a great seg actually, because we had a question about the rains move to, mm-hmm. to Lumen field up in Seattle, yep. which I think is a great question. I think that it also, that's another larger, a larger thing, which I think we've actually seen some positive movement on, which is venues. And it's good. Cause like there's all, some of these questions sort of linked together in interesting ways. So, the first question was kind of let's talk about particularly the rain getting out of Cheney stadium up to Seattle. They're at Lumen field. Now they are, I think that I'd I have to double check. I'm not entirely sure they're training. It might still be in Tacoma. It causes kind of a fractured situation mm-hmm. for the, for the team themselves. I know that the spirit are in a similar position, right? They played at a couple different places last year. Which none of, not all of which are even where they train. They drive all over the DMV area, basically, in order to do their job. Um, so for you, John, maybe let's just do like a baseline. No baseball fields next year. That's yeah. a step up, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely for the broadcast, absolutely, yeah. and for the players. Yeah. Um, um, the lumen field spe- specific question, though. The only thing that I worry about is you worry, what does it look like if there's 7,000 fans right. in that stadium? And that's, that's an issue that MLS has dealt with, you know, the, the revs playing where they play the fire playing where they play. You've seen this issue in major league soccer before as well. Um, you, sometimes you put a team in too big of a venue. It just doesn't translate very well on television.
0: Right. And they've got a specific issue in that there is no soccer specific stadium, right? The ML MLS team up there also plays at Lumen Field, which is the mm-hmm. NFL stadium, to be clear, um, for the Seattle Seahawks. Um, they don't have the option that Kansas City had. Kansas City had a soccer specific stadium that they could roll right into. They're building their own, and that's all great. Um, OL wanted to build their own soccer specific stadium in Tacoma, and that is basically dead. That's why they moved, moved out. Um We've talked I do think we've talked about this before, you know, real estate in this country and soccer go hand in hand with the newness of the sport, because getting these stadium deals done is complicated and frequently lengthy and difficult. Um, You know, you even go back to North Carolina. Steve Malik's been trying to build a new stadium down in North Carolina for years. And I don't know if that's ever happening. Um, So here's my my next thing, like you say. OL Rain moving into Lumen Field is great. They're getting off of the baseball field. I think in 2019, and every team kind of took an attendance hit over the pandemic and in 2021. They were averaging, I think maybe like 7500 people. It was good. It was good for an NWSL team. It was post post-World Cup. 7500 people at Lumen Field probably isn't going to cut it. Do you think, and this is a difficult question to answer because it's 2022, it's not 2014, it's not 2015, 2013. Does moving into a more central location give a women's soccer team a boost? What do you think?
1: I do think so because I know that in NWSL environments where the stadium is right downtown, it's just a much easier experience, whether that's Orlando Uh, Kansas City to an extent, even though that's not in their downtown area, there is a little kind of suburban.
0: It's a complex of things.
1: Right. And there's a mall and there's hotels and there's restaurants. It's nice. Providence Park. When you go there, there's a whole little neighborhood right there. Uh, We've talked about this with Chicago, if they were to put it on the north side and having kind of a neighborhood around. I think that all makes a difference. But the rain played in downtown Seattle for years. And now it was Mm -hmm. a dilapidated, falling yes. apart Very stadium, good. which I yeah. don't think anybody got super excited about going to. And I think Lumen's obviously much different than that. Um, but the people of the downtown or, or center area of Seattle still need to show that they will uh, come and show up for, for women's soccer.
0: Well, you have to think the hope is like doubling, right? At least yeah, their attendance. And that's a, that's a heady goal for sure. I think they can totally do it. Um, okay. So maybe this is, this is a good segue to the next, next question, which actually leads us to a question about Gotham. Um, so, oh, Olympic Lyon, OL group, they can afford the rent at Lumen Field. That's not a problem. Now, will they always want to? Who can say, but they can afford that. That is not a big deal. Gotham moved to Red Bull stadium in 2020, which is absolutely a step up. You know, they... Mm-hmm moved out of the, you know, they were at a college field. Right. Um, they now have capability from the city of New York. You can get there yep. um, by train. It's a much higher capacity. You have to imagine that rent at, at Red Bull is quite high. And Gotham, despite the popularity of the rebrand, had probably about the same attendance issues as everybody else in that market. All right, here's a loaded question for you, John. Are you ready? was part of the transfer for Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger a ticket selling proposition?
1: That's an interesting question. They're I They're very know, popular. They are. And it and and they're that's... good.
0: I'm not saying they're not, but this was a question that was asked was what does this do for maybe the uh, profile of the team?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I broke down, this is probably three, four years back, but I broke down one year where, um, wherever Orlando went was that t- that particular team's highest or second highest attendance of the year. Yeah. Now that was with Alex Morgan as well. Right. Um, which I'm, so I'm sure that, yeah, right. I mean, they had a team full of stars. I'm sure that's bringing people out. Uh, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, definitely. I think Harrison Krieger have their very deeply committed Sect of fans.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I'm not saying it like it's a bad thing. I don't think that that's a bad thing. No, but I'm just saying, like, does that
1: make a a notable bump in the New York market? I don't know. I don't
0: know, right? Because Gotham's building, that was part of the whole rebrand idea, right? Is they want to not only service the New Jersey area, but also New York. They want that. um,
1: And I I, I guess maybe the
0: the second thing I was just going to say is, like, do you think that for a team like that, they're also going to have to see an uptick in, in tickets sold to be able to stay at a place like Red Bull.
1: I don't know about that just because their owner is rich beyond yeah, what any true. of us will see. It just see is not
0: acceptable losses, t- right?
1: 10 lifetimes. But right. um, I will say that Orlando for all their star power drew on the road and did not draw at home.
0: Yeah. Isn't that, that was also and always.
1: So yeah. if you have Krieger and Harris there every single week, right. does it maybe lose mm. Some of that drawing power you know because wherever the national team goes they sell out or almost sell out the venues and that's because it's there's, there's a scarcity right. to that
0: yeah um okay well then maybe just quick hit What what is your thought I mean again just because you haven't been on the podcast in a little bit what's your thought on the Gotham Project
1: I I'm probably in the minority here I kind of loved their defensive successful chaos, yeah, last year strategy, yeah. and yeah. I thought Sheridan was amazing, and I, I I very much enjoy watching a player like Mandy Freeman and Estelle Johnson play. So um, it's going to be interesting to see because we already know that their front line is very good. Mm-hmm. We've known that for two years. I think the you could see in the Challenge Cup right. that that front line was capable. Now VN's has has left at least for the year, which. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a puzzler for me, but you've still got three or four very solid forwards. You've got a really nice midfield and you're bringing obviously Christy Mewis into the mix, which is great. Um, I think we got to see whether they can make that defensive chaos work again, uh, obviously changing two very big pieces in that back five.
0: Yeah. I mean, I... I like it. I mean, I don't necessarily like, I really don't think it's a step down. I think it's more just about how do you make it all fit and how do you make it all fit for a whole year? I think is maybe the other thing. Cause, and this is actually something that Ashton Harris and Alec Krieger spoke about when they've talked to media, which is that the Orlando team really struggled with fading down the stretch, even when they had good starts. And so even for them, I have to imagine. I, in an ambitious way, it's going to take some adjusting. I mean, even Christy Mewis is coming in with Houston. Houston also struggled with fading down the stretch a number of years. I think it's, taking some players and trying to turn sort of the best of, of, of what they have into something that can last Gotham struggled down the stretch in 2021. I think that, I think that that is a difficulty for teams trying to break into this kind of upper echelon of the league is yeah. figuring that out. And so I think that that is maybe what I'm watching from Gotham's coaching staff. Um,
1: a little depth of squad helps too. Yeah. Right. And I think Gotham had that last year, but sometimes didn't use it. Right. Which was a little puzzling because yeah, they had I mean, it's some nice pieces. kind of the VN pieces.
0: question, right? Of like, why wasn't she playing more? Why let her not be available this year? That sort of a thing. So. And they're
1: midfielders too. They had more depth in the midfield that they yeah. didn't seem to use very often.
0: Right. That's true. So we'll see. Um, another question. Yeah, this is a good one for you, John. Do you have any players that you're kind of watching this year? it's hard to tell with sort of so much movement all over the place. Um, what makes, is there a certain player where you're like, Oh, I think they could have a breakout year. Anybody feel on the verge building on something from last year? What are you thinking?
1: I, I think this is probably a good place to talk about Trinity Rodman. Yeah. Um, Because so I have two questions going forward looking at, at where she uh, kind of develops or how she develops from here. Number one, can she replicate what she did last year? And I I don't think there's any reason she can't. But obviously, in sports in general, not even just soccer, there are times where we see a rookie phenom come in and then they struggle to replicate that in the second season. So I think we got to see, can she do that in her sophomore season in the NWSL? And then the other thing I'm really interested, because I think she could be top level like starting for the United States national team at forward in the next world cup. I think that's where her ceiling is. But the other question is that watching the way that she plays and that she's already at her age, sometimes having issues with her back.
0: She plays um, a lot of physical abandon. Yes.
1: And you know, players adjust as they age. Right. So that'll happen naturally. But what I'm wondering is, do we get to a period four or five years down the road where she has three, four amazing seasons, and then the injuries accumulate and and she fades, or does she find one of these Rasputin-like physiotherapists who find the magic? Right. You know what I mean? Balance. Like you see like yeah. NBA players that have their like special assistant who does these you know, individual exercises with them and then they play into their late thirties. Right. So maybe she figures that key out. It's, it's similar, I think in a respect to the way Alex Morgan came into the game mm-hmm. and then had basically two years of ankle injuries and right. stress reactions and then had to change her game right? because she couldn't play the same way that she played when she was 23 or 24. So, I am just really curious. It's so cool, I think, to be sitting here at the beginning of this
0: well, it's also to, kind of unprecedented, too, because, like you mentioned, you mentioned Alex Morgan not being able to play the way she did when she was 23 or 24. Mm-hmm, well, Katie right. has got three more right. years before she I even know. gets there. Right. So it, that is. Also, and is that a good
1: thing or a bad thing, I right? Does that, we'll do the injuries accumulate sooner? Or? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's the kind of thing where you need good coaching, right? I think that that's where coaching becomes paramount. And in, in Washington, they feel like they've got the right person in Chris Ward. And there's no reason not to think that that's true. Um, I think we've seen in the men's game here as well, but also sometimes in the women's game, it is that sort of steward, the the lack of stewardship over Mm -hmm. a player that can really mess things up or accelerate those kinds of issues. So um, the hope perhaps is that again, with a CBA with hopefully a new culture of transparency with players feeling more empowered, a player like that has the ability to make some go in some directions that maybe players before her did not have the opportunity to, to go into. And so Um, No, I think that's fair. I mean, I'm really excited. This is something that happened this week. I'm really excited about the Maria Sanchez signing. I think that that, that's a player that even like I'm not even trying to place expectations of productivity to her because that is also a team that is figuring out a bit of a new system because the cornerstone of their team just moved. Um, But that's huge. That is so exciting. Just even for NWSL, I think. More transfers between NWSL and Liga MX femenil is great. I think that that is a fan base that the NWSL should absolutely be tapping into. Houston treated it like it was a big deal. It is a big deal. That is a player that John and I have watched on and off since mm-hmm. she was drafted into the league. The talent is there. I love the idea of a player moving into different club situations that are good for development, which is what the NWSL is not famously not always great for. Um, I would love for Maria Sanchez to have a really good year, I think as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, the two of us sat in the press box in Portland mm-hmm. during Watched a preseason her, game. She right.
0: On a corner kick. Right. Yeah.
1: She had like 15 minutes where yeah. she was going one at one with players and, and doing some really interesting stuff on the ball. And you thought, wow. And then it obviously never happened for her in that first run.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, she was a player. I mean, we've seen this, this is, it's a story that, that is becoming that people are talking about a little bit more where if you're a player that, um, has a very particular style to your game, or needs a little bit more coaching, or whatever. In the NWSL, you get siloed very quickly, yeah. um, in favor for players that are more favored starting eleven type players. And so, I think that um, I think that I, I think that her journey has been interesting, and I think it's special. And I really hope for good things for her um, this year as well. Okay, yeah. So let's maybe then pivot a little bit into we had some questions about about money and I think this is maybe a good a a good place to sort of break down some of the stuff we've already been talking about um what money means in the NWSL because I think that this is important going into this year as well. So when you say a team has money that can mean a lot of different things. That can mean that your ownership has a lot of money to spend on facilities and housing and Um, training and partnerships and staffing that is a part of having money. And that is something that historically the NWSL um, some teams have done better with than others. So that kind of stuff is important because it's all of the little things that don't go into player wages or, um, or any sort of on the books sort of a thing. So if a team has rich owners, like we talk about LA having a lot of money, or San Diego having a lot of money. That's what we mean in that context. Now, talking about teams having money then to spend on players is a little bit different. And, John, you're probably a good person to ask about this because it's now been two years since the introduction of allocation money into the league, which is wild. It feels like it's been here forever, but it wasn't. It's post-Sam Kerr, right? This was introduced in January of 2020, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like nobody knows how much allocation money anybody has <laughs> or how much allocation money they've spent on anybody or yeah. where any of this is going. Does it feel like that's a failure or is that how the league likes it? What do you think?
1: Well, I think it is a failure because as, as we were told, that was all supposed to be a very public
0: you have to, if you use allocation money for a deal, you're supposed to say, right?
1: Right. And so, and there are times where it's not clarified. Yeah. Um, and I know there are certain people who are very interested in chasing that stuff down and try very hard. I think it's just become monopoly money in my head. I, I always struggled as somebody who covered MLS before they covered the NWSL. I could never understand because they had, they had two different types of allocation money. Right. they had the targeted you know so it just got all very confusing and what you started to see um with with them in particular was how little the draft ended up mattering as right. a result of all of that and so i think probably the nwsl especially when you get to a um a homegrown player rule type situation the draft will just become less and less important but uh yeah, that's really difficult. I think the other thing that we discovered at the 2020 draft, which was a little bit troubling, was that play or that teams can use that allocation money for, for operating it. Yeah. Right. And so you it puts the poorer teams in a position where they can really act against their own long-term interests that they can be trading valuable assets to make sure that they can just keep the lights on right. at their at their club. And, and we wouldn't
0: know, right? That's not right. something that people would know about.
1: And it felt like when that was first introduced, that that was going to be something that was benefiting the players.
0: Right.
1: And so it almost felt like, whether that was intentional or not, it's kind of hard to know sometimes with this league, but it f- kind of felt like a bait and switch at first. And and we didn't find out because they introduced this all came out to the best of my recollection in an email, like 48 hours after the final in 2019, Mm -hmm. where we found out about all this. But we didn't find out that the money could be used for operating expenses until until the draft. draft. Right. So there were a couple of months there where everybody was assuming it was one thing and then it turned out it was something else and
0: yeah the 20 and also to be clear the 2020 draft was the last time for a long time we had in-person availability right yep Um, right yeah i think until the 2021 final which then we had commissioner availability but not Mm -hmm. any sort of ownership availability
1: after that this plays into a much larger discussion which i know everybody has been having too but ownership groups not having to be publicly accountable for a lot of the news over the past year right? because there just hasn't been that in-person media coverage the way there has been in the past
0: right um okay well then maybe a good sort of follow-up to that is we've seen allocation money used to get deals done uh, Mm -hmm. frequently a a lot and i think i don't think that's bad i think that um, especially when maybe you talk about player wishes getting a player out because they would like to be out and then um, getting money back rather than sending another player with them or sending a player the other team against their wishes. Um, it's good for getting deals done. Yep. We've seen evaluations kind of go all over the place. Yep. I think as of um, as of the 2020, 2021 offseason, I think our highest precedent was $200,000, which I believe was what got the Crystal Dunn deal done. Um, but I think we've surpassed that now, right? We had. 250, I think for, for Alex Morgan to San Diego, we've seen draft picks get moved for 85. Like I think even Washington spirit for a second round draft pick, this draft moved it for like 85 grand in allocation money. Um, Would you say it's fair? The state, this statement is fair that teams use of allocation money to get deals done in this evaluation of like 75 grand or higher at this point, is not reasonable considering how little they're actually paying the players that are being acquired with that money?
1: That's an interesting question. I've never, I guess I never really thought of that that way. So what you're saying is that
0: if, if the, the Washington State is $85,000 to right. buy a second round draft pick and they're going to yeah. sign that draft pick for $22,000, that seems like a problem, right?
1: So you're right, because now you're, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because I do think somebody said that at one point, maybe when that, Particular trade was made. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It might've even been one of the athletic reporters, but uh, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point that I guess I hadn't thought of. I think that probably plays a lot into the, not only the discussions you're seeing right now with the NWSL CBA, but with the CBAs you see in every major sports league, which is the owners are trying every which way they can to hide the money that they are making and the players are trying to get as much of the money as they can. And that's what unions should do to right. protect their laborers is get the highest amount of money that they can. Um, so I imagine that's playing a, a big part of the negotiations right now is trying to put the owners in a position where they have to pay the players uh more of their share or at least of the a percentage
0: of, of what's spent on their acquisition or something like that. Right. Cause at this point it's just p- owners passing money to owners instead of that going right. down to, to players, um, which is part of the issue. Right. And so it does, it, it leads the question of like, what is, what is allocation money for, you know, allocation money is for paying transfer fees, it's for, getting, um, it's for getting deals done, absolutely. And that actually has been a benefit to players because there are players mm-hmm. who have been moved for money that otherwise yep. might not have been moved at all. But I don't know how much these players are actually getting paid this money. And I think that that is the concern because like you right. said, when it was originally introduced, it was introduced as a way to pay players more. Right. And I'm not sure we're getting that.
1: That's That's a good point too, because if you do go back to that original email it talked about which players were eligible mm-hmm. for the increased pay. And it was at the time, it was non-national team players right. who met a series. There were a series of requirements. Yeah, you had right. to be one of these things because I remember that that was right after the NWSL 11 and second 11 came out. And that yeah. year they were such a joke.
0: Right. Um, yeah. For the performances
1: right. on the field. And that was when we started to have that discussion about, Oh my gosh, this is really going to affect their livelihood. Babies. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure it did that much at all, just for the top, top, top team, top players. Um, no, but obviously allocation money is also important because Federation allocation no longer mm-hmm. exists. And so right. you need that kind of money to be able to pay those players that were getting paid that amount from the U.S. And so I don't think that's necessarily bad because there was concern when allocation money was introduced that there was going to be um, discord amongst your U.S. players because they were getting their wages limited versus what could be paid to other players who are not us players. Fortunately, we don't have that problem because I think at this point, the highest paid players in the league are the us players. And hopefully you can build on that. Right.
1: Well, we had that very interesting period following that because I think, I think it was Megan Rapinoe had said, well, we deserve some of that money. Right. And then there were people with the NWSL PA some of their reps were very upset about that because, you know, look, some of their players are still on these minimum contracts. Yeah. um, Which is,
0: look how far we've come. Megan Rapinoe is a member of the NWSL Players Association now. So things are very different. Hopefully, Claire, I mean, hopefully that makes it easier, easier, more clear. Hopefully this, you know, again. I think it's
1: going to make a lot of things more clear, even with the national team call-ups and the camps and it should I I do think there are a couple of exceptions where the allocation system made things better, but I think overall um, kind of scrapping this and you mean federation allocation. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. I agree. I agree. I think that that helps a lot. I think that that was something I do actually respect that. I think that was something that had to happen before we could get a CBA done with the league. So hopefully that helped in that respect too. So moving away from players a little bit um, there was a question and again, we'll talk about this generally. I think we're probably going to get coaching news soon for the two teams that still need them. Um, they have to. Preseason is coming up real quick. Um, <laughs> Kansas City and Chicago both need coaches. I would be shocked if those hires were not already made. Like I said, this is right. Sunday night. It's just about finding out when they happen. Um, you can tell me what you think, John. Here's my thought. is Just sort of knowing Chicago a little bit. I would be surprised if it was not someone who was already working in the states. I would not expect them to go get somebody from from Europe or from a different different continent is maybe my thought for the Red Stars. What do you think, John?
1: Yeah, I mean my my honest thoughts are probably a little too hot to say out loud on that, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Um and I think we're going to see announcements on both of them probably this week.
0: Yeah, agreed. Um, I mean, again, they have to, uh, I don't know. I mean, again, with, with Kansas city, they've been looking for a little bit. They got a, a general manager hired. They hired Cammy Levin to, to be the general manager of the team who is someone that obviously was a former NWSL player. She was a Stanford grad. Um, I was very impressed by the resume that she amassed. She only retired from playing in like 2017, 2018, and has a number of, of good jobs since then. So, um, someone who I don't think has a ton of team experience, but hopefully can, has the other attributes to do well in that role and, and learn in that role. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know if Chicago hiring a general manager. I don't, I don't know what, what their plan is. So we'll find out. Um, so we don't really have an answer to that other than they sure better get that taken care of quick. Um, and then from there, and we can, we're, we we can wind this up pretty soon, but you know, obviously the thing that people are thinking about right now is the, sale or non-sale of the Washington spirit yep. to Michelle Kang. And I, I feel like at this point doing this weekly, like I have talked about this so much. I don't know if I have more to add at at, at this moment that hasn't already been said. Um, okay. But here's maybe one The this was a question I thought was a really good one. A really good one um, was a question about, we sort of have this issue with the owners in the NWSL in that we have people who, as singular majority owners of teams, are working in their own best interests, which, if not uh, admirable, is understandable. We saw the league kind of take a handoff approach with this. They're not going to force Steve Baldwin to sell to Michelle Kang. They don't want to get involved. Um, The question was... And this is a bigger, this is sort of a bigger question. So there there are other systems in other countries, footballing countries, that do not have teams owned by one primary owner that is the managing owner of a team. I think the thing that was brought up was the Bundesliga 50 plus one rule, which is basically that um, a private owner cannot own more than 49% of a club. Is that... And I don't know. It's this, this a sort of a heady question, but should the NWSL, in maybe not now, but in the general future, when you talk about mitigating systems to stop abuse or neglect or misuse, is there a way you could restructure ownership, or is this the? I mean, that's not how Americans do it, right? I, I don't know. What do you think, John?
1: I don't know either. I, I really don't. I think and I said this maybe two months ago. The problem that you have right now, which again, I don't know if this would fix, but is that over half of the primary owners in the NWSL either hired coaches with previous allegations against them or enabled and protected them after allegations came out. And these are not the people who are going to fix the system. They're just not. And that's, To be totally honest with you, one of the things that's been the most heartbreaking about this past year was that in 2020, when events off the soccer field became so big that they could not be ignored, even in a sporting environment, I said that the NWSL is going to have to choose what kind of league it wants to become. And it so unbelievably clearly became um, or made that decision and became like every other major corporation in America, which is going to issue its very nice statements on the right days of the year, which celebrate certain groups of people. And then is just going to do whatever the hell it wants the rest of the time. Uh, it's been really disheartening. Um, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I think, I came to soccer first, um, but one of the things that I enjoyed once I came to be a fan of the NWSL and, and covered the NWSL was that it really did feel like something different. And I think it still exists as something different in the media and within the hardcore fans and most of the players, clearly not all of the players. Um, but those the values that are embraced, I think, by the majority of the media that covers the league and the majority of the diehard fans, and probably the majority of the players, is clearly not embraced by the owners. And they're going to say what they have to say publicly. And when stuff comes up, they're going to try to bury it. And when that becomes public, they're going to hire law firms to do independent investigations and, you know, either never release that information or release a two sentence summary a year later. I, I just, it's hard to put into words how disappointing this past year has been from the ownership perspective of the NWSL.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and then maybe, yeah, where, where I'm at, and I've been thinking about this a lot this week, right, is, well, the spirit we're supposed to actually have mitigating percentages. Michelle Kang had an equal percentage to the other two owners. They formed a block, a voting block against her. Um, I don't, you know, I think the question about the 50 plus one has to do with fan ownership, which I think is something that could work. But to be completely honest, there aren't enough fans yet. Um it might get there someday, but I do think that one of the issues is just that sort of equitable power in terms of size is not where it needs to be to be able to handle something like that. Nor do I think, like you said, the league will pursue it. Um, So then maybe my question for you is this, because this is maybe where my mind is at in sort of figuring out how this is going to work in 2022 is if you can't fix the ownership, (laughs) right you get a collective bargaining agreement that i guess protects players from ownership yeah essentially i mean it's kind yeah. of a it's a stark way to put it but that's what it's for you put a contract together that protects you from owners you invest in a fan community that is different and then at that point have you reached somewhere where it feels okay to support the league, knowing that the ownership is never going to change? If we I don't get, know. If we protect players and protect people, yeah, is it just something where I, there's always going to be problems when you have this <sighs> value system that...
1: I don't know. I, I I wrote a piece for Equalizer near the end of the season yeah, where I spoke to leaders at five different supporters groups. Yeah. And I said, tell me where you're at. Tell me what you're feeling. And these are people that I've known for years and years and years. These are people who are hard core supporters of women's soccer. And they were almost universally bereft of hope. Right. They just broken, just broken down. Um. And I feel like to whatever extent it's possible, those things have gotten worse since that conversation late in the season, because we had more abuse scandals come out. Yep. The ownership saga with the spirit has gotten worse, which I I don't really want to get into it. And I know you've talked about it. I don't know how you, as a businessman, accept a deal that's worth ten million dollars less than another deal that makes yep. absolutely no sense to me.
0: Well, John, there's um, a reason, but well, it's okay, not a, <laughs> right? It's not a good yeah. one.
1: Yeah. Um. Then you follow that up with what North Carolina did. Yep. In re-signing Daniels, what Portland did in drafting the cello,
0: which they did announce. Well, they didn't announce actually. That's not true right. They didn't announce. It was reported by Miguel in a hand that they are trying to reverse that decision if they can. Yeah.
1: But these are just such colossal screw ups. Yeah. That make you think that either a, the owners of this league have spent the last year watching everything that happens and still don't get it. Right. Which I don't believe at all because these are not stupid people. Right. Or B have done a financial calculation that it doesn't matter. Right. And that's they're, where I think they're at.
0: They're willing to, they're willing essentially to, with the understanding of year after year growth, replace
1: the fans. Yep. 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 We're going to get rid of these hardcore yep. pain in the ass fans. Yep. Who keep issuing these statements that we should sell our shares or that we demand these actions. They're going to completely ignore that yep. or pay it lip service. And then they're just going to move on.
0: Yeah, I think you're probably not wrong. Um, a good
1: note to end on, right?
0: I mean, it's where it's like, that's like, this is a straight episode four. This is like four or five, six. So just kind of finishing in the same place. And it's something where everybody knows that this show does, tries very hard to cover the sport and cover the games and cover the players. And, and I hope that we do a good job of that, but it is off season. So this is what we're talking about because it keeps happening. Um, th- there were other questions. I mean, we didn't get to everybody. I want everyone who asked questions about FAWSL or Asian cup or some of that other stuff. I I'm going to try to get some people on in the upcoming weeks where we can talk a little bit more about that. Don't worry. I'm, I'm not ignoring that stuff. Cause I think it's good to talk about, but, um, yeah, just good to get into some general league stuff, I think. Um, and thank you so much to everybody who tweeted back at me on Sunday afternoon. You saved my butt. Cause I didn't know what we were going to talk about. So, thank you so much uh please i'll put this at the end because we didn't really take a break uh please rate and review this podcast give us five stars we will try to do our best for you in 2022 and it helps people find us so thank you so much john for joining me shout out to our producer extraordinaire jacqueline purdy i've been your host claire watkins um and like i said i think we're gonna get some nwsl news this week so hopefully we'll have some stuff to talk about next time but thank everybody for tuning in we'll talk to you next week